listener production. Hello, I'm Jamie Barnes. And this is Ian Moss. This is Angus Young of ACDC. Hi, it's Daniel John. G'day, I'm Kirk. And I'm Tim. We're from NXS. G'day, I'm Dave Gleeson, and this is These Days, the greatest moments in Australian music. Over four action-packed episodes, I'll be showcasing the people, the songs and the events that changed Aussie music forever. No one was really in it for the money. Everybody was in it for the love of the music. And I, I still kind of, I still wish I was in the 70s doing the Eagle Rock. ACDC opened the door for pub rock, but the angels kicked the door in. It's September 1979. Mad Max had us captivated at the cinema. Daniel Johns was five months old and Rupert Murdoch's bid to take over Australian TV sparked the first review into media ownership in the country. Australia's most successful rock export of all time are undertaking a gruelling two-month tour of America, playing their biggest gigs to date. They've just hit the big time and gone top 20 on the US chart. This defining moment will open the door for every single Australian rock act that follows them in the future. It is, of course... ACDC, and they are smashing the international market open the same way they broke through the pack at home, showcasing their awe and power live with constant touring and performing small venues as if they were giant stadiums. And in 1979, Bon Scott, their iconic frontman and our first global rock star, is literally flying high, living the rock star fantasy to the extreme. Sadly, he's only got months to live and we'll never see the influence he continues to have to this day. More on that soon. While ACDC exported the Australian pub rock sound to the world, their DNA stretches back to an earlier decade and the pivotal impact on our musical history of the legendary Easy Beats. Formed at the Villawood Migrant Centre in Sydney by kids whose parents had migrated to Australia, the Easy Beats literally built the foundation of our local music scene. There'd been the odd Australian rock moment before the Easy Beats, but after the Beatles changed all the rules, local acts like the Bee Gees, Masters Apprentices and the Easy Beats became the soundtrack for Aussie teenagers to listen to music made right here at home. Here's Jimmy Barnes. These were homegrown heroes. These were guys that we could look up to who were just like us and they wrote some of the greatest songs that the world's ever seen. Triple M's Cat Lynch explains what fans at the time were spending their money on. This was that incredible era where albums were expensive to buy but live music was literally done dirt cheap. I've heard of $1 in excess gigs at the Sefton Hotel. This was the era we define as pub rock. It was high energy, lots of fun and sweat literally dripping from the ceilings onto the crowd. Aussie pub rock had its own sound. Some of that melody from the 60s, but with amplified guitars and a whole new raw energy attracting a new generation of young Australians. When bands got it right, it was intoxicating on so many levels. Here's the living ends, Chris Chaney. You know, the Australia back then felt maybe a little bit more like the Wild West. It was like this kind of, um, these big beer barns. And I feel like the bands were like almost not on trial, but <laughs> you sort of feel like if they didn't have the goods and they couldn't win the room over, they'd probably get cans and stuff thrown at them. We saw Melbourne blues band Daddy Cool spend 11 weeks at number one with Eagle Rock, a tune that would inspire one of Elton John and Bernie Taupin's biggest hits. Crocodile Rock was uh, directly a, a result of Elton John coming to Australia and hearing Eagle Rock. And he became a sort of a champion of ours. He, he arrived here 
and he was touring around and we'd been over in the States. We got back here and they said, hey, you've heard that guy Elton John? I said, yeah, no, I've heard of him, yeah. Every time he's on the radio, he says, I love Daddy Cool and makes them play Eagle Rock and come back again. And the next thing we know, Crocodile Rock hits the airwaves and on the album cover, Bernie Torpin's wearing a Daddy Who badge. And I thought, well, that's that's cool, you know. And he's, he's, he's basically acknowledged that he and Bernie thought this is a great thing, you know, this kind of looking back at the childhood music, which is kind of what Daddy Cool were doing, you know, the music we liked when we were kids, and getting that naivety and innocence into the music, you know, Eagle, OK, we'll have a crocodile. Killing Heidi's Ella Hooper recalls Eagle Rock as a national treasure passed down from generation to generation. I'm a huge Daddy Cool fan and I've had such a good time getting to know and love Ross Wilson over these recent years. I sort of have wound up gigging with him a lot and he's just still awesome. He's still got it. But when I was a young girl growing up in Violet Town and I saw uh, the Eagle Rock film clip, I, I felt some things. I felt some things. And I, I still kind of, <laughs> I still wish I was in the 70s doing the Eagle Rock with Daddy Cool. Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs were reborn in the early 70s as one of the loudest rock groups Australia had ever heard. At one gig in Sydney, legend has it the sound was so loud it killed the fish in a tank in a room above the stage. That's rock. Billy and the Aztecs headlined the first Sunbury Music Festival in Melbourne on Australia Day in 1972, an event that drew 30,000 punters to see a fully homegrown lineup. It would be a sign of things to come as we came to celebrate the wave of our own bands and our own sounds. Just a few months later, Billy Thorpe would demonstrate just how popular he was at a free concert at Melbourne's iconic Music Bowl. Here's the late Billy Thorpe. 3XY did a advertise for one week for a free concert at uh, the Maya Music Bowl and the police shut the, the streets off at 250,000 people. You know, there was, they, and they said they, that there was roughly 400,000 people heading for the concert. Now that's one radio station for one afternoon show for one band, you know. Uh, not bad, and I don't mean that egotistically, but I'm talking about that's indicative of just how vibrant the times were. This vibrant rock scene that started in local drinking holes of Melbourne began to take off nationally with Australians flocking to pubs all over the suburbs to see young artists cutting their teeth. Lee Simon, who would later launch FM Rock Radio in Australia and host music TV show Night Moves, witnessed how crucial pub rock was to the development of our local music scene. It was going out with friends and having a great time and watching your favourite band. In the 70s, bands might perform two or three times, you know, they do an early set at one venue, pile into a car, go to another venue, do another set, and then do another one at one o'clock in the morning or two o'clock in the morning. And their crowd would sometimes follow them around. Uh, a lot of loyalty was developed from that. We did live rock in Australia more so than any other country. And it was that live scene, those young bands marrying old school rhythm and blues with huge rock riffs which fueled the early ACDC. Hi, this is Angus Young from ACDC. The ACDC story begins with Harry Vander and George Young who'd written one of the first Australian global hits, Friday On My Mind, with their own band, The Easy Beats, returning home after a few years trying their luck in the UK. After their Easy Beats producer Ted Albert opened a recording studio in 1973, George and Harry became a production powerhouse, working with the biggest names of the era. FIFA Riccobono worked for Albert's record label and ACDC in the 1970s. When they had the band in, it's like very rare that a band comes in and writes its entire album, but they encourage and, and they stru help structure and help with the songwriting to make certain that they could perform what they actually wrote themselves. It really meant something to them. So 
all of our artists were writing all their own songs right from day one. And when they were looking for new talent, they didn't have to search too far, with George Young's little brothers Malcolm and Angus already starting to create their own music. Settling on the name ACDC after seeing it written on their sister's sewing machine, they played their first gig at Sydney Club Checkers on New Year's Eve in 1973. And here's Lee Simon on the early days of ACDC. ACDC started without Bond. Dave Evans was the original singer. Uh, the jet black long hair, a lot of stage presence, uh, the flared satin pants, a look very alien to what we came to know ACDC uh, as being. At that stage, Angus was trying all sorts of different outfits. It was before the, you know, the school uniform thing. And they were doing not so much the harder side of ACDC's uh, repertoire. It was a little bit pop. It was a little bit rock. It was a little bit cheesy. Um, but everyone saw the bare bones in there of a band that had a whole lot going for them. By November 1974, singer Dave Evans had been replaced by the great Bon Scott, who had already been carving his chops in bands like the Valentines and Fraternity. Bon was a regular hanger-on with ACDC and convinced the band to give him a shot as singer. Here's Angus explaining their first impression of Bon. There was a, a guy called Vince Lovegrove and he was uh, doing an agency in Adelaide and uh, he said to us, I've got a friend friend of ours that'll drive you about. You know, while you're here, show you the sights and everything. And uh, up, up comes this old big FJ battered up old and comes, I mean, I never, uh, <laughs> well, if you knew Bond, you, you just saw this, saw this wild weaving all over the road and this guy pulled up, braked, you know, got out, got out the car and said, hi, I'm, I'm Bond, you know, he introduced himself and everything. He said, no, I'm going to drive you to the mouth. Well, me and Malcolm knew Bond from uh, seeing him in that band, The Valentines. We had seen him in that and uh, at the time, the guy we had, uh, you know, who was up the, up the front doing, churning out the vocals, you know, we felt, well, we wanted more a rock and roll singer, me and Malcolm. And, uh, you know, we knew Bond could sing, so we asked him, you know, straight away, yeah, because uh, one thing we knew, he couldn't drive. <laughs> so... <laughs> the chemistry was instant and promoter Michael Chug said it was the right fit. It was the perfect vehicle for a Larry and like Bond. With Bonnie out front, the band relocated to Melbourne in 74 to cut their teeth in the electrifying pub rock scene. And Bon worked his way through the venues, seducing audiences, often literally. His reputation as a pants man was legendary with lyrics that talked about his sexual exploits. Ella Hooper says Bon was one of a kind. I think Bon Scott is the ultimate Australian frontman. Like, just set the bar so high, so charismatic in such a rough way and I think many front people still try to put across some spice and some roughness but his was so genuine. ACDC played hard but they also worked hard. Promoter Michael Chug worked with the band on their exhaustive early Australian tours. Chug said the band's reputation for pushing the limits began to catch up with them, especially in regional Australia. We were playing Dubbo, Civic Centre you know, and the last show they ever did here was called Lock Up Your Mothers, uh, Your Daughters. And, of course, the Bible Belt, the mid, the country areas of Australia couldn't deal with it. We had shows blown off by the councils and everything, and the band just packed up and went to England, and that was the beginning of what, where it all went. By 1976, ACDC were in London, blowing punk rock bands off the stage at the Marquee Club. 
Here's Bon Scott in a radio interview at the time talking about their UK popularity. Yeah, that's good. You seem to be, uh, the band seems to be generating a bit of excitement over there at the moment because we've got the new NME here with uh, it's a, couple of, a week or two old and uh, it's got the review of one of the last concerts you did at the Marquee and uh, uh-huh. it, it's a pretty good review, mate. Yeah, yeah, just like when we first came over here, they, they were sort of uh, pulling us down, like they had things like more chanda from down under, you know? Yeah. And uh, now they're sort of uh, saying that they like us. By the mid-70s, the ABC launched a TV show that would dominate the Australian music industry. <laughs> Hosted by Molly Meldrum, Countdown gave ACDC their first TV performances, including Bond dressed as a schoolgirl singing Baby Please Don't Go. The first episodes of Countdown coincided with the launch of Colour TV in Australia, and Molly was as surprised as anyone that the ABC backed the program. In 74, when we um, the green light to, uh, to put uh, six shows of Countdown together, I thought, you know, that was just going to be it. Um, as it turned out, those... Um, six shows turned into eight, the last two being an hour. And then I really thought, you know, over the summer of uh, 74, 75, that that seriously was it. And I got the surprise of my life when um, our executive producer, Michael Shrimpton from the ABC, rang me and said, he said, they're going to continue with the show in, 70, in 75. And in fact, it's going to be the entire year of 40-odd uh, episodes. Because Countdown aired nationally on the ABC, it meant instant exposure for local acts who could suddenly do extensive touring around all corners of the country as Michael Chug explains. It became the six o'clock dinner television show for the whole family. And, you know, so many bands broke because of that. I mean, some of the acts I managed, like Jimmy and the Boys and bands like that, they broke. It turned John Paul Young into a superstar. I mean, and the list goes on and on. Um, Molly was amazing. And that show, Rob Weeks and the people around Molly, it was you had to be on it. And one Aussie band would be the right artist at the right time as Countdown defined our pop culture. Hi, this is Greg McCain from Skyhooks. Skyhooks didn't arrive fully formed. An early incarnation played at Sunbury Festival in 1974 alongside an unknown international band by the name of Queen. Like Queen, Skyhooks had been influenced by the emergence of glam rock and they also would become famous for referencing the Australian way of life in their lyrics. Here's their bass player and main songwriter, Greg McCainish. It was sort of a question I was considering at the time because I'd, I mean, I'd been brought up listening to people like Chuck Berry and uh, who wrote about Memphis, Tennessee and Chicago and all these places. And they had an incredible sort of mystique and ring. Just the mention of that one word, you know, conjured up all these images. I mean, they were not places I'd been to, but I, I could sort of imagine you know, what they might might have been like. And I, I, so I started wondering if were there any sort of Australian words that were, that had that kind of magic to me, you know. Um, and before then, I know, it was a few country sort of songs that talked about Udnadatta and <laughs> Gundagai, but uh, there wasn't anything that I'd sort of really experienced that had that ring to it. And so I, you know, just sort of sat with that question for maybe a year or, or more and sort of came up with these places in Melbourne that I knew that Carlton, it actually suggested a few other 
things there, yeah. yeah, like the students and the drug deals, and, <laughs> and, and Turek had a certain mystique to it as well. So I, I sort of chose places that, that meant something to me and, and to other people. Skyhooks did the hard yards on the pub circuit, often crossing paths with other homegrown acts on the rise, as the late Shirley Strawn recalls. I can remember one of the lineups we did at Chelsea Town Hall here in Melbourne one time was uh, mm. Buster Brown with Angry Anderson out front and Phil Rudd on drums, ACDC with Bon Scott out the front and Skyhooks, and you got to see the three bands for three bucks. I mean, that's a fantastic... I mean, they were great times. I mean, it was, it was really good fun. But Skyhooks capitalised on the rise of colour TV, even referencing it in their breakthrough hit horror movie about media coverage of the Vietnam War. Skyhooks seduced viewers in glorious Technicolor, dressed in their crazy theatrical clothing, Red Simons with that crazy makeup and an amazing costume, and of course Sheryl prancing around the stage like he owned the joint. When Aussie teenagers saw horror movie performed live on Countdown, they flocked to record stores to buy it, making the song a number one hit in March 1975. That album would go on to spend a remarkable 16 weeks at the top of the charts and sell close to a quarter of a million copies, making it the highest selling album for an Aussie band at that point in time. Skyhooks were a band loved and respected by their peers, like Midnight Oil's Peter Garrett. I would have loved to have been in Skyhooks. They were a really important band for me as a young kid growing up and at uni. We played with them when they were just breaking through with that first fantastic album, all about songs about Australia. Um, with Shirley Strawn's brilliant singing and just the songs that McCain had written were, 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 I thought, very, very special. And there was something about their cheekiness, something about the pop sensibility, something about the, the, the dexterity of the playing, you know, they could play. But most important of all, they had completely buried the cultural cringe, the things that come from America or overseas we have to bow down to and lick the bootstraps of, you know, whoever's doing well in Billboard, they had completely buried that cultural cringe big time and put six feet of good Melbourne dirt right over it. The enormous success of Skyhooks was a turning point, not just for the band, but for their manager and record label boss. Both roles filled by a young hustler by the name of Michael Gadinsky. The first time I met Michael was as a result of Skyhooks. He came up, I was working in Sydney at the time, and he rocked in and owned the place when he walked in as Michael. Anybody who's experienced Michael along the way uh, just had a presence. He would walk into a room and you knew Gudinski was in the room. Uh, and it was his enthusiasm when he turned up in Sydney with Skyhooks and they were already up and running at that particular point. Um, you could see in his eyes that he knew that a whole other phase of what he was doing and what Mushroom was doing uh, had just begun. He'd start Mushroom Records in 1972, the same year he displayed his business flair by making a buck selling watermelons to the thirsty punters at Sunbury. More moves in a bag full of eels, old Michael Gadinsky. And in a music industry known for exploiting musicians at the time, Gadinsky wanted to give artists more creative freedom. Believe it or not, in the 70s, the imported car was the, was the big deal. Imported clothes was a big deal and imported records. And I, I just couldn't understand it because there was so much great talent around town and stuff. And a lot of the labels didn't give bands any creativity and a lot of them were doing cover songs and it, it really wasn't some big business plan to start Mushroom. It was just gut feel and um, a service that I needed to provide to uh, my own artists. And when you've got much more creative control over everything, um, really, it's bizarre to think about it, but in the early days of the record industry, a lot of artists didn't have a say in what they sang, what their cover looked like, who they worked with. 
And, um, you know, we really wanted to change that. And in Skyhooks, Michael Gadinsky had found the band to bring his ambitious dreams to life, changing the Australian music industry forever. Uh, they really were a perfect act for the label, and I think the label was the right label to give them the kind of freedom uh, and say in their careers that really was unheard of for acts at that time. Skyhooks contributed a lot of change to this industry. They were the first act to work around Australia and, and develop what was called a door deal, where if you draw more people, you get more money, was something uh, that wasn't around in the 70s. It was uh, The business was very much weighted towards the business, not towards the artists. And I think today it's certainly swung around and it's a lot fairer a split in general. But just as Skyhooks were at the peak of their success, one young band in Adelaide were already falling apart at the seams. Hello, I'm Jamie Barnes. And this is Ian Noss and Cold Chisel. Cold Chisel were getting a fierce reputation for their immense live shows, fueled by alcohol and substance abuse, often seeing band members coming to blows before gigs. They depended upon friction and tension uh, to get the best out of themselves. Jim and Steve Presswich, for example, would famously aggressively shove each other around and punch on, I'm told. I never saw it, but I'm reliably told. And then they would step on stage and just smash it out of the park. Frontman Jimmy Barnes would often quit with Ian Moss replacing him on vocals. At one point in 1975, Barnesy left Chisel to join Fraternity to replace the freshly departed Bon Scott. Then in 77, he announced he was leaving Cold Chisel to join his brother's band, Swanee. But his farewell gig went so well, he stayed on, and within a month, they'd signed a major record deal and moved to Sydney. Here's archive audio of Jimmy and Mossy explaining how the band formed. Well, somehow we all stumbled into each other in Adelaide. It was sort of friends of friends of friends of friends, you know, they all sort of knew yeah. each other. And um, we sort of all got together, and uh, we rehearsed for about three months in Adelaide. Then we moved up to uh, Armadale, which is northern New South Wales, and... Um, just gigged around up there under uni circuit for a while, for about eight months. Mm. Then we um, were sort of just basically getting the band used to playing live because most of us had never played you know, in bands before. Yeah. Properly. Well, apart from yourself and Ian, who else is in Cold Chisel? Don Walker on piano. Phil Small on bass. And uh, Steve, Steve Preswich on drums. By 1978, Chisel released their self-titled debut album, which contained the song K-San. Despite the buzz around K-San, it ended up being banned by radio for the lyric about open legs and closed minds. Despite now being viewed as one of the best Australian songs of all time, it didn't even crack the top 40 upon release, if you can believe that. Steve Presswich wrote some beautiful songs. You had Ian Moss, an extraordinarily gifted guitarist and a beautiful counterpoint to Jimmy. Don Walker, the brooding thinker in the band who wrote those lyrics. One of the first songs that people experienced from Cold Chisel uh, and that resonated with them was K-San. And Walker had a way of writing those songs that really resonated. Jim had a way of delivering those songs in a way that uh, was unambiguous. Here's Andrew Farris from In Excess. They were one of the best live bands I think I ever saw in my life. And we had the pleasure as young blokes in excess they invited us to go on tour with them i think in new zealand where we first toured with them and uh i think jimmy invited my elder brother tim to try and drink the bar with him i think my brother won actually that's oh, a terrible story isn't it? anyway um but we were a lot younger they can handle that sort of thing not now don walker wrote k-san after hearing stories from friends who went to vietnam and like skyhooks before him he said he enjoyed writing about issues and topics that australians could relate to further cementing another great moment in australian music 
There's not much sense in uh, writing songs about uh, New Orleans or Memphis or yeah. sitting in Sydney or Adelaide. Yeah. We've yeah. never been there. And Southeast Asia is uh, at least as interesting an area anyway. The band would end the decade with a hit album and a fierce reputation for live shows and debauchery behind the scenes. Jimmy Barnes said he was inspired by ACDC and Bon Scott and not just on stage. I loved them, particularly with Bon Scott, who was uh, who was probably uh, the great rock singer of, of all time in Australia, I think. Better than Johnny or Keith, better than everybody. Really? He, was a, he was a character. He made, you know, I reckon that, that band really took pub rock to, to new heights as far as debauchery and music. However, the band felt they hadn't captured their live sound until super producer Mark Opitz came along. I'd gone down to the studio to get a bit of equipment. I remember Jimmy in the vocal booth singing Shipping Steel and he just looked so pissed off, you know, and I don't blame him because when I heard Shipping Steel on record, it was nothing like the live version, you know, which was really, really hit you in the face. Opitz would give them their last release of the decade and their first big hit with Choir Girl, but little did they know, the band had only a few years left on the clock. Meanwhile, with ACDC up and running, record label Alberts continued to foster the country's appetite in new local rock bands like Rose Tattoo, fronted by Angry Anderson, and a band I know pretty well, The Angels, fronted at the time by Bon Scott's mate, the one, the only, Doc Neeson, just one of the greatest frontmen ever. Hi folks, this is Doc Neeson. These guys had the Brewster Brothers' signature twin guitar attack, further setting them apart from the pack. Their debut album featured Am I Ever Gonna See Your Face Again, a song that, like K-San, is famous now but wasn't a commercial hit when first released. It wasn't until the infamous live version in the late 80s which included the audience adding their cheeky retort in the chorus that the song made the top 20. Who hasn't participated in that? Well, I know I have far too many times to mention. Their second and third albums turned them into a platinum-selling band and one of the country's most popular live acts. Producer Mark Opitz said the band had discovered a sound he called sophisticated punk and had a key appeal with Australian blokes. The beginning of pub rock was bringing the male agenda into the music scene more. People who wouldn't listen to Sherbert, you know, guys like tradies and apprentice butchers and people like that would not listen basically to Sherbert or, or go and particularly buy their records. And that's why you see such a huge jump in record sales because all of a sudden it wasn't just the women buying the records, it was the, it, it was the guys as well. For instance, uh, the first Angels album I produced, which was their second album, Face to Face, that went five times platinum, you know, in, in a year, whereas before everyone just used to get gold records. Opitz said while Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs had created pub rock, the Angels combined that huge live following with massive record sales. For example, with that album that when I was making it, I had in my mind, this is the album. As I was making this record, I want the Apprentice Butcher on a Friday night. He's getting ready. He's playing it on his, you know, stereo. He's getting amped up to go and see his mates at the pub. And then when he's on his way to the pub, he's got the, the cassette slammed in his you know, in his panel van on the way to the pub and he's just amping up, listening to this, you know, get the energy up, get the testosterone levels up. Think, gee, I'm going to get pissed with my mates. I might get lucky and get laid. You know, I'm just going to the pub and I'm going to have a good time. And that's the feeling I wanted to really create with that sophisticated punk music. And it worked. And the late Doc Neeson said their success also translated to local radio supporting more homegrown acts. We, we pretty much carved a new territory for Australian music and 
it worked because Australian bands liked what we were doing and they kind of used to ring up radio stations and say, you know, play Take a Long Line or something like that. And and we put that put pressure on, on the radio stations. But it also gave radio stations the indication that there was an Australian audience for Australian music. As the pub rock scene continued to rise, bands were starting to look beyond the UK and set their sights on America. Skyhooks followed up their taboo with Ego Is Not A Dirty Word in 1975, which spent 11 weeks at the top of the charts and proved their success was no fluke. Along with Sherbet and ACDC, they were the highest selling Australian act of the 70s. Michael Gadinsky negotiated Skyhook's a million dollar deal for the US market. However, the band were written off as Kiss imitators, who were dominating the market at the time and they never took off. By the end of the decade, changing lineups and dwindling record sales saw the band run out of steam. But when Skyhooks had failed, ACDC had conquered after signing a global deal with Atlantic and conducting relentless American touring. FIFA Riccobono, now viewed as the godmother of Aussie rock, was promoting ACDC's music at the time. It wasn't by accident. It was a plan. It wasn't easy because nobody was sort of putting their hand up and saying, yeah, they're fantastic. They had to really, you know, work it. ACDC's 1979 album Highway to Hell landed in the American Top 20. With years of touring finally paying off, Producer Mark Opitz remembers the band's Power Age album of 1978 being highly influential to some of the world's biggest rock stars. As you probably know, it's become, to the ACDC aficionado, the album, you know, of, you know, to Keith Richards, the album. And, you know, I can remember working with Kiss and, you know, we're bringing up that and, 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 and Gene Simmons saying to me, didn't I see your uh, name on the uh, Power Age album? I said, yeah, yeah, he said, no. And he just was just, from that point on, Gene and I were just bang, you know, like like that. They were already starting to inspire other artists with their strong sound and the image of Angus Young in his school uniform creating cult status. Here's Ella Hooper. I think there is a bit of ACDC DNA in every Australian rock band, or there should be, because they are such a good band. Like, the musicianship is incredible, the concept is incredible, the styling. Now, sometimes people say, oh, Killing Heidi, so so overstyled and such a look band. Uh, so is ACDC. Akadaka were poised for global superstardom and the money had started rolling in. I'll never forget one night I was, uh, they were staying at the Portobello Hotel in London. Bond had just got a new Maserati. And he drove me around Notting Hill at 190 miles an hour at 2 o'clock in the morning. However, the start of the new decade would change everything forever. Singer of the rock group ACDC was found dead last night in a parked car in South London. Scotland Yard said the body of 30-year-old Bon Scott was discovered by a friend who had left him in the car hours earlier to sober up after a day's drinking. I'm Dave Gleeson and you've been listening to These Days, the greatest moments in Australian music. As we wrap this episode of the 70s, the 80s was about to define a whole new cultural movement. Well, it kept on being just a big surprise and every time we turn around a corner we go, oh, things just got bigger and bigger and bigger as we went along and you're thinking it just can't keep happening. Special thanks to Ella Hooper, Peter Garrett, Michael Chug, Lee Simon, FIFA Riccobono, Cat Lynch and Chris Chaney. This episode was produced by Georgie Page. Written by Cameron Adams. Audio production by Mike Santos. Listener.